Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to another edition of the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. Ryan Ray here today, not alongside Josh Shelton, as once again, folks, he has taken vacation, holiday, sick leave or something, but we have David Blackman sitting in his chair. David, thank you so much for your time. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, just great. Just great. Happy to be here, man. Appreciate the invitation. Well, it's good to uh, good to have you back on. It's been probably about a month or two. I don't know. Have we had you on this year now? It's kind of hard to Yeah, think. I was on in January, late okay. January. It's, it's already March. I was looking back at uh, we had some listener questions, and they were referencing something we said a few episodes back, and I was trying to think back. And, you know, it's March. We're recording today on March 11th, and it's crazy that 2019, we're, we're, we're know, the year's getting away from us, isn't it? It is. It really, really is. So couple things before we get into the uh the show um we had a review on itunes so we'll read that real quick uh, five stars um from speaker i think is how you say that s-p-e-i-k-n-e-r two additional pipelines with takeaway capacity and and permian was welcome news and this was the first place i heard about it thanks the guests are okay however we turn in to listen to you two guys um thank you speaker for that uh, I guess that means Nate is no longer welcome on the podcast. So we'll so so Nate, um, you you had your shot and you blew it, man. We brought you on and the people have spoken. So um, he, Nate's gone. Um, and then let's see, David. We had uh, we had a debate last week. Um, the first time we I think we've had a debate. Now you participated in something uh, on my old show. We had a roundtable discussion about Donald Trump the first 100 days. But this was an actual an actual debate that we hosted on the topic of eminent domain. And so we've gotten a lot of people uh, have have, um, have weighed in, and we, we have a question from a listener we're going to take here in a second. But just before we do that, I'm curious, on this current debate around eminent domain, where does David Blackman stand? And then we'll get into some of the listener stuff in a second. Well, you know, it's, it's a touchy subject, and I, I know everybody has their own views on it. I, from the industry's perspective, it's something that these midstream companies is basically midstream companies who make use of it and they try to do it as rarely as possible. Um, but the reality is, you know, these pipelines uh, that move oil and natural gas are common carriers and any common carrier has the ability to exercise them in domain uh, for right of way access for, for that kind of a project. Um, what happens in Texas and, and in other states, every state has their own eminent domain laws. Uh, the company first, you know, makes every effort to negotiate an agreement for damages with, with the landowner. And I've been a landowner in the past and we've had quite a few pipelines come through our property down in Goliad County. And invariably, because I had an uncle who was a great negotiator, we would end up being paid more than the market value of the land just so the pipeline could dig a ditch and lay a, lay some pipe through it. So, but you know, you always have, uh, instances where the where the company is not able to reach an agreement with a landowner and you end up in a conflict and and so the eminent domain law is basically there to 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 serve as a structure for resolving conflicts um right now in in texas you know we have uh, several members of the legislature who are constantly uh having complaints from from constituents like lois cole who lives in brenham um, and so the last four sessions of the legislature, she's brought bills trying to, to revise those eminent domain laws. Um, 
And, you know, unfortunately, they, they've never been able to reach a, a good compromise on a bill that will actually make it all the way through the system. So that's going on again. And, you know, maybe they'll be able to negotiate a compromise and maybe they won't. And I, I think you're right. It is it is a sticky situation. And, you know, I think I've I think I said on the show, if not, I'll say it. You know, we, we obviously at where I, the company that I own and work for, um, we work for companies that, that exercise this right. Um, so obviously there is, I'm very sympathetic to that side of it. And it feels like to me, the debate needs to be had kind of a continual debate, David, where, okay, maybe this is right. Maybe this is wrong. It shouldn't be open and shut door because it's a slippery slope either way. You know, the slippery slope is where you, you, you open the floodgates and then they could take landowners, um, land at will. And no, no one, at least on this podcast, Josh and myself, I know, and you, you, you don't sound like you're either is saying that. So you kind of, kind of, you always have to have the, the public pushing back. And the flip side is we can't get pipelines built and then nothing gets done. So you kind of have to, it seems like it, it's a debate that needs to continually go on to make sure that we don't go on either, either side of the ditch. At no, I totally place. agree with that. And of course, society changes. Things evolve over time and the balance, the right balance is going to evolve with the, with the changing nature of society. So yeah, it's, it's a topic that gets revisited constantly and will continue to through the years. Okay, let's get to the listeners' questions. First, from JL. Well, this is not a question, but we'll go for it anyways. Not a question, but I wanted to weigh in on your analysis of the natural gas price moves a few weeks ago. Natural gas rallied due to colder than normal weather and the possibility it would continue throughout the winter. It then fell due to warmer weather forecasts, not due to production ramps. While I don't disagree that the natural gas market can turn production on to meet demand, it needs some lead time. Great stuff you guys do. Appreciate all the content. So JL, I was I read this this morning and I don't remember what I said. Uh, me and David were talking uh, just a few seconds ago about when was he on. It's hard to remember everything we say. So if I said that and I was wrong, uh, well then then it's not the first time I've been wrong on the show and won't be the last. But thank you for pointing <laughs> you that know, out. Um, so it's I don't I don't remember what I say. So I'll just take the L because I, I could have said the wrong thing and that's 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 on me. I will say this. One of the things I remember. It's part of the discussion, David, about natural gas. And the thing that amazed me when I was drilling info, who's coming on later today, sent us a report, and that's what we we're going over, if it's the right episode I'm thinking of. And I, I was blown away by the production levels. If you go back to like 2010 through 2018, how much natural gas production has continued to increase despite falling prices. So we'll take the, I'll take the L on the wrong comment there, but that aside, it, it still blows my mind is how much um, natural gas production generally year over year yeah. increases like the prices. Yeah, it's not just due, not just with falling prices, but with dramatically fewer rigs drilling gas wells. I mean, it, it, as recently as 2011, we had 1,600 drilling rigs in this country drilling natural gas wells, and now we have about 100. Part of that is because all these wells in the Permian Basin, the Bakken Shell and the Eel Ford Shell, have an awful lot of associated natural gas you know, with, with the oil. And, uh, and so, you know, while natural gas industry does need some lead time to increase production, we really don't need very much lead time. Um, and the, the natural gas in this country is so abundant, so amazingly abundant that, uh, you can really, uh, increase production very rapidly now, uh, with very little effort in our industry. Okay. Let's go next to Will. Um, Will, actually, this is about you, David, so here we go. I recently read David Blackman's article in Forbes titled, The Oil and Gas Situation is a, tra is a Train Wreck Around a Corner. Now that, I think this is probably about, about a month. Yeah, that was uh, around 1st of February. 
Okay, okay. And it highlighted a topic of ignorance for me. I could use some help. David mentioned that OPEC had cut back exports to help bleed off a supply glut that happened in 2018. Meanwhile, U.S. production continues to be drill, baby, drill. The The EIA said in late 2018 that the U.S. producers will set a new record by March of 2019 in exports. David then welded these two points together by commenting that the rate at which U.S. producers are are going will totally offset the purpose of the OPEC cuts, therefore forcing OPEC to extend its cuts on through 2019. Here's my here's my so first off before we go to the question, did he nail your synopsis so far? So far, yeah. Okay, okay, that pretty well. Okay, there we go. Here is my question and some assumptions. In 2015, it's my understanding that OPEC got tired of the U.S. shell producers smothering the market and not sharing the wealth. So in retaliation, they flexed their massive production muscles, driving prices so far down that it became financially intolerable for the U.S. producers to keep at it. And while OPEC was giving the U.S. the what for, let's see here, and while while OPEC was giving the U.S. the what for, many of the new startup companies bled out of cash, in overhead and operating expenditures without anything coming in. Given Dave's article, do you guys think that OPEC is pulling punches and letting the U.S. get punch drunk before bringing down the haymaker on them a second time? So, David, I'll just start with you. Do you think that that's what OPEC's doing here? Well, I, you know, not not intentionally, uh, but but if you, and he obviously read the article uh, that I wrote. Uh, one of the points I made in the article is that my fear is that ultimately we may end up with the same uh, similar outcome. In, in 2014 and 15, it was an intentional act by OPEC and mainly Saudi Arabia uh, to dramatically reduce crude prices and try to put the U.S. shale industry out of business because it was infringing on their markets. You know, but then the, the dramatically lower prices. Uh, also impact the OPEC countries because they depend on oil revenues. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, it wasn't just U.S. companies going out of business or going bankrupt. You know, the, the OPEC countries uh, found they could not uh, fund their social welfare states. Uh, Saudi Arabia has a very expensive one that needs $90 oil to fully fund, right? And so so they decided, well, you know what, we really need stronger prices. And that's why they ended up entering into this agreement with Russia and Mexico and other non-OPEC to limit exports and try to dry up that big glut on the market. And so my concern is that is this, you know, they've gone through three rounds of additional uh, cuts in their exports, these OPEC countries, uh, over the last two years. And at the same time, U.S. production has dramatically increased. I mean, two million barrels a day increase in 2018 alone. And we're continuing dramatic increases, uh, as we've seen uh, Exxon and Chevron now talking about incredible increases in their Permian production in the next few years. And at some point, I just feel like these these OPEC countries in Russia and Mexico are going to come to a point where they're not willing to cut exports anymore to accommodate rising U.S. production, whether that ends up coming to a head in 2019 or 2020 or 2021 is anybody's guess, but eventually these OPEC countries and and the other countries involved in that agreement are going to run out of volumes to cut. And at that point, we're going to come to a a breakdown here, a a train wreck as I, as I put it in that column and some, something's going to have to give. 
because global demand is continuing to increase, but it's not increasing at such a rapid rate that it can just continue to accommodate 2 million barrels a day more production from U.S. producers every year into perpetuity. Uh, so that was my whole point there. He, he got it. He obviously read the article closely and, and, you know, it's a very good question. Again, I don't think the OPEC countries are going to intentionally crash the market, but you may come to a breaking point in which that that's what ends up happening. Okay. And I meant to pull these numbers before today's episode. I forgot, but I guess the only, the only thing, and it's just kind of hard to talk about all this stuff, David, because there's a lot of players and a lot of factors, as you know, um, going on here, but if you go back to, you know, the great downturn, as I call it now, I guess, um, you know, U.S. production kept growing um, from 14 to 15 or 15 to 16, whatever the years are, because of just, you know, as we talked about before, drilling schedules, lease obligations. Well, it fell, I will say it did that. fall in 2015 fairly significantly, but then starting in 2016, it just started going right back up. For the right. Right. And so I guess if you're on the, if you're playing the devil's advocate side um, of things, if you're looking at it saying, okay, well, you know, U.S. producers, and I know me and you've talked about this multiple times, and we have to remember here, when we talk about the U.S., we're not talking about one company. And the listeners know this, and it might sound obvious, but it, it really makes a big difference. We're talking about a multitude of companies that have uh, different interests and strategies. But if you want to lump them together and say, well, U.S. producers um, are going to add X amount of barrels to the market, if you are the Saudis or you are OPEC, you know you might look at that and say, well, we're not really concerned with what you guys are doing. And so is it necessarily that they're willing to put the U.S. out of business, or is it they're looking at the U- or is it that they're looking at the U.S. producers saying that, hey, you guys are trying to put us out of business? They might feel just as threatened as some of the U.S. producers do. Well, yeah, and 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 that is the the very crux of the issue here is the U.S. industry is thousands of competing companies, and there's no government mechanism to force them all to stop producing more and more oil, right? Whereas in Saudi Arabia or, or most of the other OPEC countries or in Russia, it's a national oil company and they can control their production however they want to. And, and so the reality is that, that all these U.S. producers, are, they're simply managing their companies based on market conditions and pressure from investors. These are co- mostly corporations who have investors who are pressuring them to increase profits and increase production. And so that's how you do it, right? And unfortunately, that creates a situation for, for our industry here in the United States where we're always in either a boom cycle or a bust cycle. We boom until the market won't accommodate any more boom, and then we go into a bust, right, and retrench. And in 16 and 17, we had more than 200 companies go through bankruptcy. And 100 of those companies went away completely and got absorbed by other companies that are more profitable. So it's the nature of the industry. It's the nature of our free market system. And we don't have a government, big government controlled national oil company. And, and that's just part of what comes with that free market system is this, this constant cycle of ups and downs. And we're in an up cycle now. And I, I'm just praying we don't go back into a down cycle too soon. On that, David, I, I know I've talked about it on here before. If we if we did have a down cycle this year, let's say that was pretty severe, twenty dollar oil again or something like that, um, I've kind of hypothesized that maybe you'd see um, Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, insert big, you know, BP, Shell, someone like that would come in and start to buy up um, these smaller companies, if you will, in the Permian Basin. And then when you came out of this this downturn, what you would see is is a lot less diverse Permian Basin. 
um, because you'd have companies who could drill it, process it, refine it, um, ship it. They could do all the processes, which makes them a little bit better to handle the ups and downs. Um, yeah, and so if we saw that, if we did have that, which is not what we want, by the way, but if we did see that when we came out of the downturn, it would seem to stabilize some of these these issues that we have because you might have, you know, instead of this, just to make up a number of thousand companies, you might go down to fifteen companies, which would be a lot different result for what's going on in the Permian. Yeah, um, and and of course, all the majors are in the Permian now. You know, BP and Shell are there too. It's not just Chevron and Exxon. Uh, ConocoPhillips is there in a big way. Oxy is a huge company that's out there and all the big independents. But but then you also do have hundreds of, of mid-size and small companies that are also, you know, getting in on the play and, and making money on it. And uh, I, I really think that prices are, are low enough today, frankly, that we're going to see a good deal of, 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 of acquisitions and, and, and buyouts uh, going on uh, out there in the Permian. Uh, I think we'll probably see another kind of uh, ramping up of that kind of activity later this year and going into next year, just because it makes sense at, at, at these prices for a lot of these smaller companies to sell out and, you know, make, make billions of dollars in doing so rather than wait for a bust and have to fire sell everything. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I was meeting with a listener and I won't say his name because he didn't give me permission to use his name, but he told me the other day that he was at a convention conference somewhere and that they were being told he he works for a small EMP company, and that they're being told right now that um, if you're in the EMP business, do not look to sell to the big companies that the big companies are not looking to buy. And I kind of I kind of joked and laughed and said, "Well, <laughs> that's unless they start going bankrupt, then then all of a sudden they'll be really looking to buy." But I found that was an interesting comment that maybe the big ones aren't looking to buy. But but I I, I thought about that too because some of the acreage we saw purchased last year was purchased at you know prices. That you look at the break-even numbers, like wow, man, and we're not—we're kind of below that at this point. So I could see, um, I could definitely see that being the case as, it, it, potentially as well. Right, and and, and yeah, last year, uh, my God, last year we just saw some unbelievable uh, prices paid for acquisitions or buying, like in that New Mexico federal lease sale, uh, lease bonus payments to the federal government, upwards of ninety-five thousand dollars an acre just to acquire the acreage. Uh, that's crazy. That 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 is not sustainable, and you can't continue to do that uh, and keep your company healthy long term. But I do think that, that what we're going to see in the first half of this year is a lot of retrenchment in that, and, and prices are going to go down, and they're going to keep going down into 2020 and 2021, which is why I think the second half of this year you're going to see some of these smaller companies, mid-sized companies, say, "Hey, maybe now's the time to sell because this thing." these prices that, that we're going to be able to sell this stuff for is going to continue to go down in coming years. So I, I just think I expect it to pick up second half of the year. It'd be interesting to hear what the folks at Drilling Info have to say about that. Okay, David, as you mentioned, the folks from Drilling Info are here and on once again as they have a fundamental edge report for March 2019. They are so gracious to send us and for us to discuss. And with us to discuss that, we have Sarp Ozkhan, who is the Director of Energy Analysis at Drilling Info. How's it going today, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Thank you guys for sending over this report. Tons of information to get to. Um, let's see here. Let's start with this, the key takeaways page right there at the beginning. Um, crude oil and natural gas production continue setting records highs in the U.S. The growth is happening despite lower rig count as horizontal rigs hold higher initial production rate compared to traditional Vertical drilling. 
that is a point on this show, and David, I know we talked about before as well, you, we, we continue to hear about this, um, kind of break down what's going on and what are some of the factors, because the listeners are always saying, hey, we hear about longer laterals, we hear about this stuff, but give us some more insight on um, what, the, what the skinny is behind why we're able to drill longer laterals and how much more effective are they really? Yeah, so when we look at horizontal rigs and, uh, and, and the amount of wells we're drilling per rig today, of course those are much higher uh, than we used to. Uh, we used to be able to drill with the same number of rigs before uh, as we become more efficient, uh, both through drilling longer laterals as well as drilling from pads. So we don't have to move the rigs around as much, uh, saving us a lot of time and being able to drill more wells with that time. Uh, at the same time, the, uh, the, the completions have been optimized in these different basins, allowing us to get, um, get more uh, bang for our buck from these completions. Now, when we look at the, uh, the longer laterals, that's really been a, uh, uh, a reason uh, that we've gotten better with, uh, with our IP rates and our productivity from these wells. These longer laterals can only be drilled if you have contiguous acreage positions, though. So larger operators are continuing to consolidate acreage positions around them through either acquiring other companies or through acreage swaps. And those allow us to get these longer laterals uh, into the ground and, uh, and, and make the production more efficient. One thing that I, I should mention, though, is although we've really been seeing a lot of uh, efficiency uh, increases from year to year with the new wells that we drill on average, we are actually starting to see that those uh, efficiencies are starting to slow. That's due to the fact that we are uh, continuing to drill at the same sort of optimized lateral lengths, which could be anywhere between 5,000 to 10,000 uh, foot laterals, depending on where you are in the country. And we continue to drill with optimized completions, which could be anywhere between 1,000 pounds per foot of crop end to 2,000 pounds per, 2,500 pounds per foot of crop end. So um, as we continue to, uh, to, to, to drill these wells and we're uh, bringing these new infill wells in, some of those infill wells, uh, the, the, the child wells, uh, as, as some in the industry call them, aren't performing at the same rate as they were, as the parent wells were. So we're starting to see some of those efficiencies fade away and some, uh, some of these typers actually show some regression in terms of productivity. That's uh, that's pretty interesting stuff there. I, I you know I have a question. Um, the the Anadarko Basin uh, is very interesting to me. Of course, you know the the Permian is is what everybody's talking about, and and so the stack and scoop plays there in the Anadarko Basin don't get nearly as much much press as they otherwise might. But uh, you're talking about in this report the stack play uh, is expected to bring more than fifty percent the oil and gas production growth out of the Anadarko uh, over the next five years. One of the concerns I had uh, about that region was the fact that the, the Oklahoma state government has continued monkeying around with severance tax rates three, three sessions in a row. They're apparently not going to do it this session, thank goodness. But uh, just wondering, have you guys seen any impacts, negative impacts on drilling levels and rig, rig counts in that basin? Uh, resulting from these these higher taxes on the industry over the last few years? Uh, anytime you see a, a higher tax rate or uh, or a uh, an uncertainty around the tax rate for several sessions, like you mentioned, it's going to be weighing heavy on the operator's minds. 
We haven't seen the rig count be uh, as uh, as impacted from that as uh, as some of the other factors, like this parent-child well relationships or uh, some of the financial situations of the operators in the basin. But uh, it's worth noting that um, uh, any time a, a a uh, local government or a state government uh, imposes some uh, some some additional tax uh, tax rate hikes or uncertainty around their tax rates over time. Uh, it starts to weigh heavy on the operators' minds and uh, could impact where they spend uh, their capex moving forward. In the report, you have just to stick on the Anadarko Basin here. You have kind of some projections for the scoop and the stack. Um, portions by oil, and by oil and gas, and the stack is um, significantly better in projected oil production as you go out through 2029, um, but with the dry gas production, it's a little bit more balanced. Kind of walk us through 30,000 foot. We haven't talked much about the scoop and stack on the podcast. We will cover some stories, um, but for the listeners who aren't really familiar with the scoop, the stack, why is it that you're saying, hey, we're seeing long-term uh, projections that the stacks will be a lot better for oil production, uh, but the scoop portion is actually going to be um, keeping pace better, if you will, on the natural gas side of things. Of course, it's uh, it's 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 a production mix story, really. Uh, the scoop is uh, a lot gassier than the stack is. The stack in sort of the core areas where uh, you have an overpressured window in Kingfisher County, uh, that's sort of the core of the stack, and uh, the the Merrimack formation along with the Osage and Oswego formations in the northeast part of the, the, the stack are uh, much more oil-directed plays than the Woodford formation, which exists throughout, uh, throughout the, the southwestern part of the stack, uh, which is much less drilled than the, than the other formations. And uh, the, the scoop really does target the Woodford formation uh, and then and, and the Sycamore and Springer formations. Uh, where you do have a lot more gas production. However, one thing to note is that recently Continental has undertaken a project in the scoop called uh, Project Springboard, and they are targeting the Springer formation, and they've had some great results on the crude oil productivity side, uh, which, uh, which may change this mix of production moving forward, but that remains to be seen uh, as we get additional results uh, from the scoop play. Hey, Sam, uh, want to talk about rig counts for a minute, change, change direction here just a second. I, I, I write for both Forbes Online and, and Shell Magazine, and um, about a year ago, I realized that you, your, your rig count, this daily rig count you guys do, is just a fantastic service. And, and everything I write now, anytime I'm talking about rig counts, I take it from the Drilling Info Daily Rig Count. And this year, you know, coming into the year, I kind of uh, anticipated we would have a drop in the first quarter this year in, in the rig counts. And it seems like we have, it looks like it's down what, six or 7% so far this year. Um, and just wondering uh, what drilling info's outlook is on the rig count for the rest of this quarter and kind of going into the second quarter of this year. Yeah, we have seen a sizable drop in, uh, in the rig count. Uh, most of the, the, the rig count drop has actually come from uh, the stack play uh, in Oklahoma, as well as the Delaware Basin, which might be more uh, uh, more unexpected to people. Uh, yeah. But if we look at why those, uh, why those drops occurred, uh, the stack drop was really driven by several different operators, one of them being Alta Mesa, 
who has dropped all of their rigs uh, given the, uh, the, the accounting uh, issues that have uh, been, uh, been coming to the fore. Uh, so a lot of the drop in the stack play is due to uh, Alta Mesa. Uh, additionally, Semarex has dropped quite a few rigs in the stack play uh, in the first quarter of the year. That's not necessarily due to the fact that they have any problems with the stack, but it's because they have just acquired uh, Resolute and are going to move their rigs over to their new position in the southern Delaware. So it's a CapEx allocation change on their end. When you look at the Delaware Basin and the number of rigs uh, that, that we've seen drop in the Delaware, that's more a function of the fact that there is uh, there are some smaller operators out there that are looking to uh, try to live within cash flow or have some uh, uh, activist investors forcing them to uh, to to, to uh, prioritize returns to shareholders rather than uh, than growth, and that has really led to uh, a lower rig count to be able to accommodate that wish. Uh, and we expect that this uh, this uh, phenomenon is going to continue throughout uh, the, the the first quarter and into the second. Uh, I believe that a lot of these operators to be able to live within free cash flow and uh, and and prioritize investor returns are prioritizing uh, returns through share buybacks or dividends rather than investing that free cash flow back into uh, into new rigs and uh, an additional growth. So uh, in the first and second quarter of this year, I believe that we'll have uh, we'll have a lower rig count than uh, than what we had uh, back in uh, the last several years. But it's also worth noting that in plays like the Permian, we are going to more of a industrial mode of exploitation rather than uh, a holding acreage. Uh, sort of exploitation where we weren't drilling as many pad wells. So drilling more pad wells will uh, help us to actually uh, offset uh, some of the uh, negative impacts in terms of the number of wells drilled uh, from a lower rig count as we'll be able to drill more wells with fewer rigs. Okay, so one of the things I have a question about is um, you kind of talk about projections and looking ahead, and you guys are analyzing a ton of data, obviously. Um, if you read the headlines, there the headlines change, it seems, every week, but there are some themes that kind of keep going on. Um, and one of the themes is, you know, the the world supply to handle our oil, our light sweet crude. And there's there's kind of a debate, and, and I've said on the show, it seems that people are kind of too biased. They're either almost a staunch Republican or a staunch Democrat in this debate, and it's kind of hard to find the middle ground of where the truth lies. Um, but you do see discussions like that. And so when you're looking at your production numbers, and you see some people saying, well, they're, the U.S., um, you know, its ability to export will will be capped off. And me and Dave were talking about a minute ago with how OPEC might um, factor into that, regardless of um, how much the world actually wants of our oil. They might cut us off because they might... Um, continue to drill at certain levels. How do you guys, when you look at your projections, weigh in the news versus what you're actually seeing with the statistics today? So are you, because um, you got projections out to 2029, which is a long time from now, how are you balancing saying, well, you know what, we're seeing this around the corner, but this is actually what we know to be true today? Yeah, yeah. So we keep a very close eye on the demand side of things as well. And we keep a very, very close eye on where actually all of this oil is being exported. And, uh, and, and, and if we look at it currently, 
I would say that we have some concerns with regards to um, to, to, to future growth uh, due to some of the, the, the factors that we've been seeing lately. Uh, one of those is the fact that, of course, uh, we've actually, uh, for barrel for barrel, every uh, every barrel of growth that we've had since the middle of 2016 has gone towards exports now. And uh, that's due to the fact that our refining uh, fleet in the United States is built to handle heavier crudes, not the lighter crudes that we're producing in the United States. So these barrels are better fit for the refining centers uh, abroad rather than uh, at home. So we continue to import some of those heavier barrels that we're better at refining and we're sending out the light barrels. We think about where these light barrels are going. Uh, a lot of these barrels are going to Europe and Asia. One of the largest exports markets that we had was China. Uh, since uh, late September, we have not shipped a single cargo to China. And uh, that's due to the actual uh, tariff wars that we have going on with them. And uh, that has sort of shut off that market, a 500,000 barrel a day market for the U.S. prior to that being sort of wiped off overnight. So we've lost a big export market in China. China is likely importing those volumes from Iran. Uh, although it doesn't show up in the statistics, the balances seem to indicate that that's the case. Uh, the other uh, thing that most people don't um, don't consider is the fact that uh, Venezuelan production declines are seen as a positive thing for the the oversupply situation and crude oil prices. However, um, Venezuela, uh, actually uh, Curacao, the small island uh, off of Venezuela, uh, was one of the largest importers of U.S. crude oil prior to the Venezuelan production decline. Why? Because they were taking that, uh, that heavy Venezuelan crude oil and blending it with our light crude oils uh, to send on to uh, end-user markets. Well, since the declines, our exports to Curacao have also gone to zero. And between the, uh, the, the Chinese market and the, the, the Curacao market, we've lost quite a bit of outlet for our light crudes, and those crudes now need to find a new home elsewhere. To be able to find a new home elsewhere, they have to compete with those OPEC barrels, like you mentioned. They have to compete with uh, any other barrels uh, that are currently making their way into the new markets that they're trying to venture into. To be able to do that, they're pricing themselves lower, and that's the reason why we've seen a relative weakness in WTI in relation to Brent lately. Moving forward, the demand growth is going to really cap how fast the United States can grow and how fast the United States can make uh, its way into new markets. When we look at the current demand growth scenario of one to 1.2% a year, uh, that seems a little optimistic to us given the financial situation globally. And uh, if we continue to see a slowdown in global growth, uh, the United States production uh, will have to be uh, to be pared down uh, to be able to, uh, to, to only grow at the pace that demand grows. We are the marginal provider of the barrel, uh, but uh, our, our growth will continue to be capped by demand growth. And uh, the, the lower demand is, uh, the lower prices are going to be uh, because we can produce uh, at such low price levels in the United States that we continue to set 
the, the, the marginal price of the barrel, even when OPEC uh, is trying to control the, uh, the, the, the world market by balancing uh, supply and demand. Hey, Sarf, let's uh, talk about natural gas for just a minute. I, one of the most interesting points in, in this synopsis of your, of your report here to me is uh, what's going on up in the App- App- Appalachian Basin where you know, we had several new pipelines come online last over last year, and uh, but we still have these takeaway capacity constraints coming out of the Marcellus in particular. The the new pipelines looks like benefited the Utica uh, more than the Marcellus, and I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the nature of those constraints and the prospects for for getting them resolved here in the near future. Yeah, so if, if we think about the Appalachian Basin, uh, we can think about it as having sort of uh, three different parts. One of them is the, the, the Utica, uh, mostly uh, in, in Ohio and the western part of, uh, of Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And then you have the, the Marcellus in sort of the western Virginia and Pennsylvania side. And then you have another uh, area of production in the northeast part of Pennsylvania. So those are the three distinct uh, production areas within the northeast that when you break it down, most of the pipeline capacity uh, out of the, the, the basin uh, falls on the western side of Pennsylvania and in Ohio. So those areas will continue to grow, whereas northeast Pennsylvania uh, will continue to, to remain flat because there's not the ability to build any additional pipelines out of the area. Pipelines like Constitution, for example, have seen a lot of environmental backlash, and uh, that has meant that those pipelines can't come online uh, for the foreseeable future, meaning that part of the, uh, of the Appalachian Basin is constrained in terms of takeaway for the foreseeable future uh, with no growth in sight. Unfortunately, when you look at the economics of Northeast Pennsylvania, it's probably the most productive area in the United States in terms of economics. Uh, We just can't get the production out. So that continues to keep prices at the basis point out in Lighty uh, at at a very, very steep discount to Henry Hub. Okay, well, we are going to start bringing this thing to a close there. So much good stuff. This is a great report, and Sarp, you are obviously extremely knowledgeable, which is why, folks, if you're wanting the deep-dive insights, you need to partner with a company like Drilling Info, which you can find at drillinginfo.com. I know I recommend them. David, I know you recommend them. Obviously, Sarp has shown that he he knows what's going on, and there's a lot more that they have to offer. Sarp, kind of walk through 30,000 feet what do you do on a daily basis? Um, what were what, the products, the services? Where are you at in the company? And if people want to reach out, they want to partner with Drilling Info, subscribe to the Fundamental Edge service, what, what do they need to do? Yeah, so the market intelligence team within Drilling Info uh, deals with all of the forward-looking analysis from supply-demand projections as well as price forecasts. We put out this Fundamental Edge report that covers our five-year forecasts for oil, gas, and NGLs. And we also have several other subscription products around the upstream side of the U.S. Uh, picture. And uh, to get in touch with us, you can email marketintelligence at drillinginfo.com. And we'd be happy to set up a, a call with you to, to go through our offerings and to, uh, to talk about the market anytime uh, you see fit. 
Great stuff, great stuff. Sarp, thank you so much. Um, really enjoyed the discussion. David, any final th- final thoughts before we let Sarp out of here today? Uh, just that, man, I, I've known Alan Gilmer, the, the chairman at uh, Drilling Info, for 25 years, and it's just been astonishing uh, the, the amount of growth and diversification that's happened at that company over the last three to four years. It's, it's just really been amazing to me. So uh, it's great to talk with you, Sarp, and uh, and give Alan my regards next time you see him. Will do. With all the companies that um, that you mentioned, David, that, you know, Drilling Info has been buying out a lot of people. If they want to buy out the Texas Long Gas podcast for, you know, a couple million dollars, I think that's on the table as well. I'll yeah. Tell that to Alan. I'm <laughs> I will pass along the memo. <laughs> Sarp, thank you for your time today. And tell John, thanks for setting this up once again. It's always good to get it on the folks at Drilling Info. We'll link to your email address and drillinginfo.com in the show notes. Thanks. Take care. All right. Thanks again to the folks at Drilling Info for setting it up, John. Um, behind the scenes there always works hard to get folks on the show. We really appreciate that. Sadly, we cannot share the report. That's one of the conditions, so we will not be posting any links to the report we were discussing, but you can um, reach out to them and um, get the details on getting your own copy of that report. But I tell you what, David, just this, this the report itself, you know, it's one thing to have numbers and charts, but when you ask them about it, it and you can see all the data that's going into formulating these opinions. It's, it's so impressive, just the sheer volume of, of uh, information and data and analysis that they're putting in to the products that they're releasing on a you know, daily week. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, you can go to Drilling Info's website and, and they do uh, produce weekly reports on various topics that uh, you simply sign up for an email list and get on their email list. Uh, and so there is a lot of public information they're putting out every week as well. But uh, they, they provide such an uh, incredible array of, of client services over there. You know, Alan... And his partner, whose name I'm going to forget, um, I apologize, uh, started that business uh, in the late uh, 1990s now, which doesn't seem like that ought to be 20 years ago, but it is. Uh, simply as, a, as kind of a mapping service of where the wellheads are and the, all the holes are, you know, old drilling, uh, you know, uh, compiling a bunch of data from, from public information that uh, was kept at the Railroad Commission and land office, uh, you know, in these state agencies that, uh, and putting in a format that was easily understandable for their clients. And now they've, they've just expanded their offering services in just uh, this incredible array of, of, of high tech kind of stuff that I don't even understand. It's, it's just uh, been an amazing evolution. Yeah. No. Okay. And so we have, you know, I forgot to bring you on, David. I've, I've got, um, you know, cause you're, you're kind of co-hosting today. So I bring you on as a guest, but um, obviously, you write for Forbes, and you're the editor at Shell Mag. So let's talk real quick. We didn't talk about Shell Mag before. So let's talk about it now. What all do you have? I know you guys um, put out. It's bi-weekly. I mean, bi-monthly, if I remember correctly, right? That's right. Yeah. Our, our current issue, the the January February issue, uh, features a cover story about the Apache Corporation's Alpine, Alpine High operation out in West Texas, and it's. Uh, Really one of the, the my favorite pieces that I've ever written, uh, what Apache's doing out there uh, with technology and just uh, the application of, 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 of economies of scale in their operations is truly phenomenal and uh, really had a lot of fun doing that one. Uh, our next issue will be out in a week or two and uh, I guess in about 10 days now. Um, the, the March-April issue, and the, the cover story on that one is uh, about the evolution of natural gas in the United States 
here in the 21st century. And, um, you know, what I try to do with these things is tell stories. And uh, this is, uh, to me, natural gas in the United States, while it doesn't get nearly as much current media uh, as the Permian Basin is getting because of the boom going on out there. Uh, natural gas is, is such a, an amazing blessing to this country. Um, and has, has really helped our country uh, reduce our carbon emissions, for example, uh, lower our uh, uh, power generation costs over the last 15, 20 years as, as shale natural gas has come online. And I uh, really enjoyed writing that one as well. So I hope everybody uh, will have a chance to read it. We post, the, post that online at shalemag.com. And uh, also you can, you know, you can buy uh, a uh, print copy of the issue as well uh, there at the website. You know, it's interesting, David. I'm curious your thoughts on this because we were talking earlier before um, before the guest about, you know, our position. And then we talked about it again with the guest about our position in the oil market. But it feels like our position in natural gas is pretty solid. So no matter what happens with the oil in the in the short near term, it feels like we've kind of solidified ourselves in natural gas. Um, oh, and that, 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 we, that, that we can't, I mean, obviously the price can dictate things, but as far as our ability to produce and compete internationally, um, you know, it, it, yeah, I was talking to someone last night and they were reading the book, the frackers. And I think we've talked about, it, you may have read it as well, uh, but Gregory Zuckerman. And, you know, I was just kind of, you know, tell, I talked about the book, kind of reminisce because, you know, like you, I was working through stuff and um, for Aubrey McClendon and those guys, when all that was going on back in the Haynesville shell and Barnett shell. And it's just crazy to think that that's where we were back then. And this is where we are now, but we really are, um, kind of locked in as a natural gas player for it. it we, we can't, we can't, we, I don't think we can be de dethroned from that position, if you will. <laughs> that's kind of no. solidified regardless of what happens with oil. Yeah. And, and that's, that's one of the things about natural gas. And, and it's, it's too bad that our education system doesn't really educate people about this and our news media won't focus on it. But I, you know, the immensity of the resource in this country is, is kind of hard to describe in terms of, the average human being really understand. I, I like to talk about, I, I did a lot of work for a national trade association called ANGA several years ago, America's Natural Gas Alliance, and Aubrey was very involved in that as well. Um, and, and one of our main talking points at that time, this was 09, 10, 11 timeframe, was that we have 100 years of supply of natural gas uh, in this country. Well, the reality is that we have several hundred years supply, uh, and maybe even more than that. I Just in the Eagle Ford and Permian Basin alone, we have two or three hundred years supply for the entire country, just of the resource that we've identified so far. And, um, you know, you talk about price being impactful on our ability to produce it, and yet prices have, have come down from seven, eight dollar range that, uh, you know, Aubrey bet his whole company on back 10 years ago to now two or three dollars. And, and we just continue to increase production every day uh, with a fraction of the number of drilling rigs running that we had 10 years ago. And uh, it's, it's just an amazing resource. Um, I, you know, my, the, the cover story I wrote starts with uh, the fact that I uh, played a, a role in, in helping to produce a uh, study uh, through the National Petroleum Council back in 2003 that the uh, National Petroleum Council is a federal advisory committee to the Department of the Interior. And it was the outlook for natural gas <laughs> through 2025. And uh, at the time, you know, natural gas, even with 
though the Barnet Shell had been discovered and with, people were drilling in it, we really thought natural gas was a very constrained resource in this country. And we were going to have to, by now, be, be importing, oh my God, seven or eight BCF of, of LNG every day, importing. Mm-hmm. Now the, the mad rush uh, where li- liquefied natural gas is concerned is, is to export it. You can't mm-hmm. build the infrastructure fast enough to, to export the volumes that are available to go onto the global market out of this country. So it's, it's been an amazing process to watch. No, and you're right. I, I mean, um, the fact that we can, we, we're drilling it and we're continuing to drill it. And, you know, the, uh, what would be interesting here, and it's not one of the things that I want to see because this would be too catastrophic for the industry. But if, you know, you know, we talk, we talk some about, you know, we're drilling these wells and they have oil and they have gas. And so you kind of extract them, you know, if, as long as oil production's up, our natural ga- our natural gas production level um, will, will rise or, or flatline, depending on where you're drilling, obviously. And so it, you would have to get rid of the oil industry uh, um, at this point, it feels like, to to really put a, a strain to where companies would then all of a sudden have to really start focusing on some serious drilling programs for natural gas. But if that doesn't ever happen, it feels like natural gas can kind of stay in this, um, I don't know if you call it the Goldilocks uh, zone, but kind of stay in the zone it is now where it, it will creep up and then it will come back down because you, you're getting the direct drilling for natural gas and then you're also getting the byproduct, byproduct drilling like we see in the Permian. Yeah, it's, it's the seesaw kind of effect where every time the price goes above $3, the, the industry activates another dozen drilling rigs and produces more and drills the price right back down. And, and the reality for, for, for natural gas is just, we're going to be in that cycle for the foreseeable future. I mean, there's, there's really, it's hard to imagine any kind of economic uh, event that could cause uh, it to break out of that price range. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's good for consumers. It's fantastic for consumers. Uh, the low natural gas price has been one of the main drivers of the return of manufacture all sorts of manufacturing industries to this country because uh, there's an awful lot of manufacturing processes that that need inexpensive natural gas to feed those processes and uh, so you've had this just amazing boom along the texas and louisiana gulf coast in new chemical and plastics plants for example new fertilizer manufacturing Mm -hmm. facilities Uh, even the steel industry uses an awful lot of natural gas and its processes, and we've suddenly had a rebirth of the United States steel industry over the last three years. Um, so natural gas is a big factor in driving all of that, and it's it's hundreds of billions of dollars in new uh, investments here in the country, and 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 hundreds of billions of dollars in economic activity, and, and it's just extraordinary. Yeah, and the final thing I'll say is I may be the the lone wolf on this opinion here. So I don't hear a lot of people saying this, but but I'm actually you, you talk about the the supply levels that we have in the, unit, in the United States. I actually think they're they're far greater um, in the in the sense that I'm a firm believer that nuclear energy at some point will actually get its day and be used properly, um, which will then you know, you, you see that actually happen in Japan now, which will then kind of maybe decrease the demand um, when nuclear is actually deployed and used properly at the scale that it should be, would decrease the demand on natural gas. So um, those numbers you talk about, you know, 100, 200, 300 years, they're actually further out if you can um, figure out how to bring in nuclear to handle, um, you know, the, the baseload like it should for all these big, large metropolitan areas. So, um, I, and I don't know when that's going to happen, David, but I, I really do believe that nuclear at some point um, will see its day. And I think Japan might be kind of the, the catalyst to at least get that discussion going again. 
Yeah, you know, nuclear has been so interesting to me. Uh, the, its main inhibitor has been the environmental movement, which is all concerned about uh, emissions uh, of carbon dioxide. Well, you don't have any of those uh, with nuclear power, uh, and yet the environmental community continues to uh, be vehemently opposed to nuclear power. And then, then the other inhibitor for nuclear has been how do you dispose of the waste? Uh, because we still haven't really resolved that problem here in the United States uh, by creating a national nuclear waste disposal site that's, you know, on a scale that's necessary for a larger industry. And so until those two issues get resolved, you know, it's going to continue to to have real problems growing in this country. No, uh, I don't, I don't disagree with that either. Uh, <laughs> that's, that is a problem. But um, I do think, you know, and then we'll kind of wrap up this, you know, when you look at Japan, they are a country that doesn't have a lot of natural resources, so they're importing so much that it puts them pol- geopolitically in some awkward situations where they're allies with the U.S., but they're having to buy you know, um, oil, gas, whatever from the Middle East, and you know, the U.S. might be in conflict with those Middle Eastern nations. And so it kind of puts them in an interesting spot. Nuclear kind of absolves them of some of that because they can decrease their dependency. Um, and so it, you know, the fact that they went through the Fukushima stuff, what's that been? God, seven, eight years ago now, something like that. Uh, and, and now they're starting to bring their, their generators back online, tells you that um, the meltdowns are bad. I'm not trying to make light of them, but also there's probably there probably um, some misconceptions, at least the, the American side of things has, about the reality of a meltdown and, and what, what the potential fallout for something like that is. Um, because if they want to bring them back so soon, um, and there's a BBC report out there, David, about two or three years ago, they went to Fukushima and you know, kind of went inside the, the no-go zone and really the, the Geiger counter where they used, you know, it wouldn't, it wasn't that bad in, in, in some spots that were considered no-go um, already. So anyway, so um, I'm optimistic about the future of nuclear, which only makes it better for us in the United States for long-term for natural gas. David, thank you so much for coming on here today. Anything else before we wrap this show up? No, I just appreciate you having me on, man. Appreciate you giving me a chance to plug uh, plug Shell Magazine and, and our cover stories. There we go. And we will be sure to link to shellmag.com in the show notes. Uh, listeners, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, keep climbing. Mm-hmm.